Hi, friends. This is episode 27 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Hey everybody, thanks so much for joining us again. I can't wait for you to listen to this podcast because this is right when we get to the core of Jesus' first sermon. But before we get there, I just want to remind you to make sure that you head to thebiblelab.com and get your study guide so you can follow along. And also here in a couple of weeks, we have a whole new updated website with a blog and everything. And so you'll want to check that out as we continue to grow together as a community. Now, today, like I said, this is the key moment when Jesus gets to the very point of what he wants to talk about. So far, he's had a great introduction. The people have been laughing. The people have been looking at each other and saying, man, I've never heard anyone preach like this before. I've never heard anyone use humor like this. I've never heard anybody quote themselves as an authority. And yet what he's saying rings so much more true than anything I've ever heard before about the kingdom of God. Jesus gets to this point and he says, from now on, every single thing I talk about in this sermon has to do with this one thing. And today we're going to begin unpacking what that one thing is. So I invite you to sit back, say a prayer for the Holy Spirit to speak to you directly and help you understand the most important thing to Jesus in his first sermon. Welcome to the Bible Lab. Here we go. Number one, I am a righteous person. Number one, I am a... <laughs> I don't know what to make of this because... Because <laughs> I have to tell you what I saw because some of you didn't see it. What I saw is, is several yeses went up and then they went down very quickly. <laughs> when they saw all of the no's go up. So I don't know what's going on, but uh, I saw you. And I know who you are. The rest of you that said no, I don't know if this is a, never mind. Okay, we're going to move on. Number two, my righteousness surpasses most of the pastors I've seen. My, <laughs> okay, okay, you're just being kind. You're just being kind because it's a predominantly no and a few maybes who don't want to say yes because we're friends, right? Should I ask it again and turn my back? Yes? Okay. Uh, Here we go. My righteousness surpasses most of the pastors I've seen. Go ahead. Go ahead. Was it different? It was different, wasn't it? I'm in trouble. All right. Number three. If you set aside any of the Ten Commandments and lead others to do the same, your status in heaven is demoted. If you set aside any of the Ten Commandments and lead others to do the same, your status in heaven is demoted. We are split. About a 50-50 split here. Okay, we're going to talk about that today because Jesus said something quite puzzling to me when he talked specifically about that. And I didn't know there was, I didn't know there was levels, like, like you would be greater or lesser, or, you know. I, I don't know. I'm just going to be happy when I'm the janitor up there. Number four, there are elements of the Ten Commandments that changed when Jesus was nailed to the cross. There are elements of the Ten Commandments that changed when Jesus was nailed to the cross. Now, I could tell that I'm speaking to a predominantly Adventist crowd because it's like 98% no. Everything stayed the same. There's no nail holes in the Ten Commandments. I grew up hearing that. There's no nail holes in the Ten Commandments. And if there's nail holes, why is there only one uh, uh, one going through the fourth commandment. And so we're going to talk about that as well today. And number five, you can be completely loyal to God's teachings and still be lost. You can be completely loyal to God's teachings and still be lost. Okay, it looks like about 95% yeses, a few no's, and a few maybes, uh, quite a few no's. And uh, so it looked like about 10% no's. And I think I just made up a new percentage. (laughs) More than 100%. 
We're going to take a look at this today as we continue stepping through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the very first sermon that we have on record and probably the very first sermon Jesus ever preached. We're looking at Matthew's account of this in chapters 5 through 7. The first week that we looked at this, we looked at Jesus uh, using a story construct where instead of saying blessed, it probably would be better to translate it congratulations, congratulations to the crybabies and the people who roam or are just trampling on. Because you've done this incredible deed, congratulations, now you will receive this gift from heaven. And he walks them through this congratulations construct. And then last week, we looked at a place that we didn't know Jesus was joking until last week when he talks about you were the salt of the earth and you were the light of of the world. And uh, when he says, uh, but if your saltiness fades, how can you be resalted? And we realized that was a common idiom, much like we would use nowadays to say, yeah, if you're two fries short of a Happy Meal, no amount of fries is going to help that. Okay, so stupid is as stupid does. Jesus says, I can work with a lot of people, but I, I have a real challenge with spiritual morons. And if you think I'm being rough, the Greek word, remember, was moron thay. Okay, he says, I have a, a tough time with spiritual morons. I want people to... Uh, definitely have this spiritual aptitude that when I say, let's go, let's do something amazing, I'm not going to be preaching to a bunch of people with spiritual dunce caps who are like, what are we doing? Where are we going? What page are we on? And so forth. So he goes through that, and everyone's looking at each other like, is this guy for real? This is crazy. We haven't, we haven't heard someone speak like this. No rabbi has ever used humor like this. No rabbi has ever, ha, ever put these things together like this. And they're all excited. And then Jesus has them. He has them right there. And he steps into verses 17 through 20, which is an introduction to everything else he says in the rest of his sermon. So we're coming to his thesis statement, what Jesus really wants to say. Many people Uh, have looked at this sermon and tried to figure out where exactly did he do it. And most theologians say this is before he has all of his disciples. He might have had two or four, but it's definitely before he had all of his disciples. And so his sermon is there to attract those that he wants to attract as his disciples and, quite frankly, to draw a line in the sand for the people he doesn't. And so as he draws this line in the sand with his thesis statement... He says these words in Matthew 5, verse 17 through 19. Follow along on the study guide. Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law, until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. All right, so it's time for our comment and question cards because I need to hear from you. How does all of this talk about the law sound unlike the Jesus we see elsewhere. How does this sound different? Because I've heard a lot of people say, well, Jesus, you know, what, he, he came and the only, the only group of people that ever gave him a hard time were the people who were the legalists. So how does this sound different when Jesus is focusing in on the law and why do you think he was focused on the law that way? Comments, questions. If Jesus came to show the character of God, and he was God. And the law of God is his character. This is the reason he cannot change and show in his life what the law can do for his life, for our life also. Mm-hmm. You bring up a great point, Anesio. Whose law is it? God's law. God's law. Who wrote it? God's world. God did. Does God make mistakes? No. Does God need to go back and edit? No. No, it was perfect when he handed it to mankind. So, of course, why would he change it? Exactly. 
So I, you're looking. Go ahead. Just, uh, I, I know you'll be arriving in Matthew 5:48, talk about the perfection of law yes. of God. Yes. And we need to be perfect also. Ah, so uh, we're going to talk about what does that mean? Yeah. And then the first question do I'm a righteous person? I put in Christ and to Christ, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then we need to wear his righteousness for we be right also. Okay. Okay. Good. I want to ask you a question. Maybe we can write some notes here on the board. Why do you think Jesus spoke so firmly about the law? What's, what's important to him about the law? Character of, character of God. So the law actually shows us that the character of God. What else? Love. So the law is love? Okay. What else is about the, uh, about the law that he doesn't want to have changed? What, what does he love about the, uh, about the law? What's so important to him about the law? Relationship. Relationship. Okay, got that one. Who's next? Eternal. What do you mean by eternal? So the law is eternal. It never changes. Okay? What else about the law? It, it, God's perspective. How does he see the law? Standard. standard. It's a standard. Okay, thank you. What else? Okay, never changing. What else? Exclusive. What do you mean by that? Worship. Uh, worship one God. So it's exclusive because it even starts out, beginning, have no other gods before me. But why would he do that? What's that say about the character of God? Why would he want to be exclusive? Uh, because he knows if you go with any other God, lowercase g, that lowercase g God does not have your best interests in mind. He has his own best interests in mind, like all of the other Greek gods, Roman gods, the gods of the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites. All, all of those gods were about bettering their experience. This God is here to better your experience. Good. What else? What is important to God about the law? It's holy. Good. And back in the back. A question regarding that comment. Yes. How can the, uh, those gods, the little letter G, will ever will think about their interests. They cannot even hear. They cannot even talk. They're dead. Yeah, in, in, in fact, all the, most of the stories that we have in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, about people trying to get the attention of their God um, has, have to cut themselves, have to shout, have to scream, have to do these crazy orgies and sacrifices just to get their God's attention, much less to get their God to do whatever it is that they want. David. It's still the continued contract between God and his people, ah. the Israelites. So it's not going to be changed. You start changing it, you're getting rid of the contract, and you have to have everyone signing that Awesome for any kind of change. Beautiful. I love that, David. Down over here. I think the law actually differentiates goodness and evil. And because it says the law might go away when we go to heaven because evil will be gone, I think. Hmm. Okay. Anybody else? Yes, right down over here. I think the law is like a skill to survive on this earth, to make <laughs> you have a better life. Like a survival guide? Yeah. Okay, good. I, d I agree. Yes, back here. Christ is the end of the law for those that are righteous? Okay, the end of the law. For those who believe, I'm sorry. Yes, so we have to look at what does that mean. If he's the end of the law, the fulfillment of the law, the completion of the law. I, I, I grew up hearing that, and a lot of people wrestle. Theologians wrestle with that. Pastors and church members wrestle with, what does this mean? Because if that's the case, and he died on the cross, well, that law doesn't exist anymore. Now there's a new covenant in his blood, which doesn't include the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments. Over here. It is not a substitute for our salvation, not a substitute for the righteousness of Christ. We cannot work to save ourselves. So, it so you is see not it a as substitute. a substitution for what? Or salvation. It is not. It is not a substitute for our salvation. Okay, so I'm going to write this the way the, the young kids used to speak. So I'm going to write substitution for salvation, dot, 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 not. <laughs> Good. That way I don't have to rewrite the whole thing. Over here. Um, I think that the law exists to protect us, protect ah. us from ourselves sometimes. Okay. Protection. 
Good. Was there another comment? There's one toward the back there. Thank you. Fair. Fair. The law is fair. Okay? And I like that. She squeaked that one in. Sensible. Okay. So, just have sensible at the bottom of that list. As you look at it, you looked at it, it, it shares the character of God. It shows his love, relationship, eternal. It never changes. It's the standard. It's exclusive. It's holy. It's a contract. Helps us learn good from evil. It's a survival guide, substitution for salvation. Not. And uh, uh, it provides protection. It's fair, etc. Okay, this is how we all look at, at the law of God. Now remember, we don't study the Bible to learn what it says about man. We already know what the Bible says about man. We need help. We, we are lost. Our righteousness, the best that we can do is filthy rags. None is righteous, not, not even one in here. So, as you look at the perspective of mankind, it's very depressing when you come to the Bible. That's why many people stop coming to church or study groups or, or Bible study or even personal uh, devotional Bible study at home is because when mankind opens God's word and tries to open a dialogue with God, the immediate feeling you have internally is unworthiness, right? We are all unworthy to have a relationship with the God who created heaven and earth. Unworthy. Despite that, that God still wants to have a relationship with us. We read the Bible not to see what it says about mankind because that is just too depressing. It's demoralizing and it's discouraging. We read the Bible to see what it says about God's character. Because the more you look at the character of God, the more you see despite how we behave, despite who we are or what we've earned, that God still wants to have this personal relationship with you. And the more we look at the character of God, the more it draws us close to God because we're realizing, are you serious? This guy really wants to have a relationship with me? The, all the power available in the universe is available to me through him? That's what I want to see. So as we look at the law here and what Jesus is trying to say about the law, it's kind of interesting. It's interesting because many of us have grown up in a generation that's trying to figure out the role of law. Does the law save you? Does the law not save you? Is it relationship or is it rules? And we, in these generations that are represented in this room, have wrestled with that to the point to where many of us have downplayed the rules so that we can upplay the relationship. Because many of us grew up in homes or churches that stressed the rules, right? And so in a, in a reaction, a knee-jerk reaction, we are stressing relationship at the peril of the rules. A friend of mine back in Texas, right when I started pastoring, uh, he's a snake handler. He loves snakes. Absolutely love snakes. Had a bunch of this terrarium. I went and did my pastoral home visit. I'm visiting this guy, and I'm freaked out. Because if there's one thing I do not love, if there's one thing that the Lord has placed enmity between me and that beast, it's snakes. And if you ever want to see me look like a huge sissy, tap me on the shoulder, and when I turn around, hold a snake. Okay? I, I, I do not like snakes. I know, it's unnatural fear, but I don't like snakes. So it was everything I could do to fulfill my role as a pastor, do my visitation, and he's here messing with the snakes. I'm like, just leave them in the terrain and let me talk to you. <laughs> oh, no, you got to see this one. You got to see that this one's amazing. This one's great. I'm like, I don't want to see the snakes. <laughs> so he's moving them from, from place to place, and he's got these little uh, uh, gunny sack bags. And he's, he's putting these snakes in a gunny sack bag and ties it and then puts it in another place, you know, to do something else got these drawers and everything. He's pulling these snakes out of bags and everything. <sighs> Only in Texas. And so I ask him this question. I say, aren't you afraid you're going to get bit? He says, no, no. So how often do you get bit? He says, hardly ever. I said, hardly or never? He says, no. I, I said, how do you put him in that bag? And he, it's, it's all muscle. How does that snake not just right onto your hand and get you? He said, oh, it, you don't understand. I don't put the snake in the bag. 
I said, I'm watching you. You're putting snakes in the bag. He goes, no, I don't put the snake in the bag. Watch. And he grabs a snake. He has it around the neck. And he puts the tail over this gunny sack. He starts to lower it. And then he brings the snake toward his face. Like starts pulling it toward himself and lets go at the same time. He's pulling that snake toward himself. Let's go. And the snake, because it's resisting whatever pressure he's putting on it, it puts itself in the bag. He said, if I try to push this snake down into the bag, he's going to resist. And he's going to come back and spring and bite me. So what I do, instead of trying to force him into where I want him to go, I put his tail over where I want him to go, and I pull him toward myself and let go. And the snake puts himself where I want him to be. I was completely freaked out and also excited at the same time because it's one of the best sermon illustrations I got. <laughs> one of our challenges is because as you were developing, many of you were developing your spiritual theology, many people were forcing you into a bag and you naturally were resisting, wanting to get out of that bag because you're being forced toward the bag. The challenge is today Obviously, in the scripture, Jesus says law is important. It's so important, it's eternal. Nothing's going to change. We're, we're going to talk about that in detail in a minute. But it's interesting to look at where we're at today, trying to figure out how do you have this marriage, this combination of relationship and rules? How do we allow God to put our tail over the bag and to draw us close to him? And as he draws us close to him, we naturally will go where he wants us to go. It's interesting to look at this scripture here. If you read it just how it's translated into English, we get a lot of the sermons you've heard growing up. God came to fulfill the law. He fulfilled the law. He's not abolishing the law. So everyone go to church on Saturday. Jesus uses some very interesting terminology here that many of you who have gone to the Bible lab for months are immediately going to recognize something, and it's going, to, it's going to explode in your brain here. If you look at the words that Jesus used to abolish, the word that's used for abolish is the same word that you would use in a marriage if you were going to annul a marriage. He says, I didn't come to annul my relationship, I came to, and the next word that he uses that we translate as fulfill, he uses the term plerosai, which means to consummate the law. Were any of you here for our series, Life in the Wilderness, when we went through the Ten Commandments, the Ten Wedding Vows? Yeah, quite a few of you. What's something that we learned about God giving the Ten Commandments. Were they laws, or what did he, what did he write? Wedding vows. That's right. It's in the whole construct, the five stages of courtship. The Ten Commandments came right at the right place, the ketubah, which is this wedding contract that God says, I'm going to make this wedding contract with you. I'll fulfill my end, you fulfill your end, and we're married. Jesus here uses that same marriage terminology to say, look, 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 I know what the Ten Commandments are. It's our wedding contract. It's our wedding vows. I didn't come to annul our wedding vows. I didn't come for a divorce. I came to consummate the marriage. I'm here to do that part of the stage of courtship to say, we've sealed the deal. Till death do us part, we are married. Jesus isn't saying, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to complete the law or to finish the law. He's saying, I came to consummate the law. Those of you who have been married, those of you who are engaged, getting, getting ready to get married, you know the excitement of getting ready for the wedding. You also know there's certain, there's certain couples. Um, sometimes at a wedding, you, you wonder if certain people should be involved in the wedding. You know? There's always, I mean, weddings are emotional experiences. Sometimes you wonder if that really is the best man and, or not. Sometimes you wonder whether the bride and groom should be involved in the wedding. <laughs> and sometimes people call it off at the last second, and some people are even runaway brides. Jesus says, look, I know what the Ten Commandments are, and they're my wedding vows. 
I didn't come to annul these wedding vows. I'm not destroying everything. I wrote those wedding vows with my own finger. I wrote them into stone twice. Thanks a lot, Moses. I came to do that next stage of the marriage when the husband and wife go into the tent. Praise God, we have different traditions today. But the husband and wife, to consummate the marriage, they would go into the tent and they would consummate the marriage. Jesus says, that's what I came to do. I came to seal the deal. So if he came to seal the deal with the vows, when you get married, is that when you no longer have your vows? Or is that when you begin to live your vows? Exactly. And Jesus says, I didn't come for a divorce. I came so that we can start living and you can start understanding what these vows are all about. We're going to live an incredible experience here because now our vows are 100% consummated. It's interesting. He also says, and I didn't change anything. I'm not changing anything in our wedding vows. Now, many of the people, you imagine, and you can read in Desire of Ages and, and elsewhere where it says, many of the people who were there were mumbling and talking while Jesus is having his sermon, which happens all the time. But these people were talking through the sermon saying, you know, this guy, he doesn't actually even believe in the law. Did you hear what he just did last week? Because as you look at the chronology, Mark, in chapter 1, he actually has Jesus uh, picking the grain on the Sabbath and healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath before the Sermon on the Mount. And because of this, everyone's rumbling around town. This is a guy that's breaking all the rules. This is that liberal who's come in, and he doesn't keep the Sabbath, and he's all talking against the law. Knowing that, Jesus says, okay, let me help you have an understanding of the law. I didn't come to do away with this law. I'm coming to consummate this law to show you how do we live as a married couple? In fact, he says, we're not even going to change the smallest detail of the wedding vows. It was perfect the, the moment it was written. In fact, he says, and the real words in the Greek um, text there is he says, uh, I'm not going to change an iota, and I'm not even going to, uh, to change a kariah. Now, many of your translations, older translations, will say, uh, not even a jot or a tittle will be changed, which are the words around that time that were actually used for um, the, the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, the jot, which we say, which is, <laughs> it's, it, it's not the correct pronunciation. It probably should be more like yod. Um, the yod was the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. In fact, it would look more like an apostrophe. So it'd be like taking an apostrophe off of a word. The tittle, or the kariah, that is this little swoosh of, of, of the brush or the quill that basically creates a horn or a little hook at the end of a letter. And these are very important, especially when a couple of letters look very similar. In Hebrew, they have several letters that look very similar. And the only difference is this little extra swoosh at the end. It's almost like the difference, those of you who are into uh, graphics and stuff like that, it's the difference between serif and sans serif. Okay, you've got little tops to it or not. And so Jesus says, I'm not even taking off this little apostrophe or any little hooks on a, on a letter. I don't want you to misunderstand our wedding vows. I'm not going to change that. It's always going to stay the same. So for those of us who are trying to look at the wedding vows and say, okay, so what is he asking us to do here? Many of us have used this text to, to try to share with our friends, some of us beat up our friends, um, about the law of God, specifically the fourth commandment. Okay? The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day. We look at it as law. What do you think God's looking at this as? Why is it so important to Jesus that not one little element of the wording of the law is changed? Why do you think this is so, so important to Jesus that he says nothing, not even a misspelling is going to be changed? Why is this so important to Jesus? Because we need to accept God as he is. It's 100%. If you need to live with him for eternity, 
You need to learn now to accept he, what he is. Don't try to change him. Lucifer tried this in the heaven. Hmm. Okay. Good point. Good point. Does this make Jesus a legalist? Because he's like very adamant about the law here. I mean, it just seems like he's very strict about the law, whereas other people are saying you're not. This is going back to the previous question, but I think it shows God's faithfulness to us throughout our generations. He stays the same regardless whether he's my great-grandmother's God or he's my God. He is always faithful. Yeah. That's what he shows. Yeah, exactly. You know, I've I performed a few weddings in, in my day, and um, it's always interesting when people choose to write their own wedding vows. Um, from the standpoint of some of the things that they say, they're very personal. They're always very personal. But they're also uh, very specific about things that they promise to do, and I'll do this, and I'll do that. And I make uh, every couple that I perform their ceremony, I make them promise me whenever you're starting to have some trouble and you're even beginning to think, did I make, did I make a, a mistake here? It's required. They have to meet with me. If I'm the one that married them, they got to talk to me before they split. And so um, it's amazing when I have had opportunity to, to talk with some of these couples that are going through a hard time. I keep a copy of their vows. And I go through it, and I'm like, you know, it was all great when it was flowers and frosting. Um, but this is what you promised. This is what you, this is in your handwriting. This is what you could barely read. You got all choked up, and we all had to wait for you and said, go on, go on, you're okay. <laughs> These are vows. These are vows we make. Better, poor, richer, uh, richer, poor, better, or worse, sickness, health, etc. Back here. I am wondering if, it, hopefully I won't be off track, but if it is about the relationship with God. You and I had a little bit of this conversation, and I love the snake analogy as a former snake owner, <laughs> which I never thought I would do. But My favorite thing about that sentence was the word former. <laughs> yeah. My yeah. snake died. It was very sad. <laughs> but anyway, it had a cold. Who knew that snakes could get colds? Anyway, I think that we've... You hit on something. I was going to say you're a pastor ahead of my comments, because in Psychology 101, I still remember back in 1970, I can't even pronounce it, <laughs> there was a class where we held up our hand, and I wondered how to cover that in audio. And if another person, if David here will hold up his hand, and notice that I push on his hand, and he immediately pushes back. Yeah, you didn't tell him to resist. You just said, hold up your hand. That is our nature with the Holy Spirit and with God. Mm. And when we try to fulfill the wedding vow on our own and we wonder where we're going to be in heaven, I think it's that same thing. And dealing with youth here, I tell them when they say, well, is it when we talk about breaking the law or keeping the law, it mm. is not inherent to our nature. Yeah. And so they would say, well, my parents say that I can't have, I'm going to go there sex outside of marriage. And I, I tell them, I said, you know, the problem is this. If you get that experience with the lowercase gods, if you fool around with all of them, how are you going to be happy, committed to one? Yeah. And that is the same thing that I see in this discussion. It isn't a matter that the law is abolished when we get to heaven. We are now in the marriage. And I had this conversation with you this week. I was talking to a dear friend who may tune into the podcast. And she said, I don't need to study the Bible. I don't need to go to church. I love God, and God is experienced in my family. And so I asked her, I said, so, you get married to someone, and they say, I'm moving to Florida. I'm never going to call you. I'm never going to write you, but I love you. <laughs> is that really working for you? Is that a relationship? Has the marriage been consummated? That's a good question. And you bring up the point, Thad, and I, I love it. Many people are in a relationship with God so they get the benefit. It's basically uh, filling in a fire insurance policy and you're paying your premiums. You don't want to burn, so you're paying your premiums. And there is no relationship there. 
at all. Good. Over here and then up here. Yes. Uh, God does not change. He cannot change. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. Mm-hmm. We can trust the marriage. In today's world, marriage is the most changing, evasive yeah. um, relationship. Mm-hmm. And, and God stands out as the difference. So we can trust our relationship with him yeah. from now to eternity. What would he change to become if his character changes? If there is one dot, one area of uncertainty about his character, where would we find the universe and ourselves? Mm. Excellent point. Thank you, Joseph. It's humbling but reassuring to know I'm not the only one who's brilliant. it establishes the absolute trust. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Okay, I'm going on a different tact. Because, uh, um, okay, so he's spelling out exactly how meticulous he is about the law. And we learn from in Isaiah that he's not only going to make it meticulous, he's going to make it even harder. It's gonna be, he's going to magnify this law. Yeah. And now it's going to turn when he says, your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, am I getting ahead? I don't no, know you're about. good. Okay, you're so good. the Pharisees, they had bastardized the law to make it think that it was humanly possible to keep the law. Yes. Because we are fallen, we cannot keep the law. Yeah. And unless we are made holy, we cannot keep a holy law. And so this is why I think if that's what you're getting to, that he is trying to show exactly how severe this is to sinful flesh. Yes. To holy flesh, this is nothing. This is, this mm-hmm. is just, it, it's like we all obey laws now in our, in our bodies, and we don't think about it. Like the angels, they never thought that there even was a law. Ellen White writes about this, that it just came to them as a, kind of a, a, something they never even thought of. And, it, and it's like when I go out and I look at a sunset, I don't have to work at making it make me perceive that it's beautiful. There's a law in me that says that's beautiful. I didn't have anything to do with that. So it's just, I appreciate it. I can see this as beautiful. When it comes to the, to the law of evil, it seems like it comes upon me without my even trying. Like, I obey this other law, this, this fallen law. Um, I may be thinking all good thoughts and, and praising God on my way to church or something and someone cuts in front of me and it's all gone just like that i didn't have to work at that at all right now i have to hear the holy spirit saying hey you know you kind of went the wrong way here let's let's go back and then it's so it's the holy spirit working in me and i'm growing into this holiness yeah not that i'm you know we you asked am i a righteous person well uh, part of me is righteous and part of me is not. And I remember reading old Adventist stuff long ago that said you can't have two natures. Hmm. And I said, I don't know what this guy's talking about because if that's true, then I only have one nature and that's bad. Yeah. But when I recognize my desire to keep the law of God, when I recognize that I am keeping the law of God, then I know it's not me, but it's God in me keeping yeah. the law. And so that's the holiness part and that's the righteous part. It's amazing. Thank you. Yes. One of the reasons that Christ may have emphasized the law at the beginning of his ministry was that in heaven, there was war in heaven. And, and what the devil or what Lucifer charged God with is that he was arbitrary, he was unjust, no one could keep the law. And therefore, uh, he, was un- he was not a loving God. Hmm. Christ came to demonstrate that he could keep the law and he could keep it through love for his heavenly father. Absolutely, absolutely. Excuse me, over here. Yeah, I just, it seems like it gets to the point of what is the nature of the law. It's not just a bunch of arbitrary rules that, that God just thought up one day and thought it'd be kind of fun to tell us what to do. Yeah. He, he created us. These are the, this is the owner's manual for the, the, the being that he created us to be. Hmm. And, of course, it's important for him not to change anything because that's how people work best is when they work within these laws. Yeah. And it's true now. It'll be true in heaven. In fact, he wants us to live now as if we're in heaven. The kingdom of God is with you now. Hmm. So this isn't about salvation. This is about now that you're saved, 
let's, let's go ahead and, and work within the guidelines that where humans work at their optimal best. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Thank you. Most of Christians, including me, myself, have problem obeying the law because we focus on the obedience to the law. But the struggle should really be focusing on staying in relationship with God, with Christ. As you stay in relationship with Christ and totally dependent on Christ, the obedience to the law comes with it as a result. Hmm. So it's not really hard when you look at it that way. Hmm. When you focus on staying in relationship and staying totally dependent in God, God will work out that obedience in your life. Hmm. That's good. We're going to go through um, in some of the epistles uh, of Paul uh, this challenge of just like what was said, the, the, the two natures. How do you live in this relationship and also what you just said to where it, it comes naturally? Uh, the more we look at the law as rule of law, uh, the worse our marriage is. In the same way that those of you who are married uh, know that if you look at just the list of pet peeves of your spouse and say, I will, I will make sure that I am focused on these pet peeves, and I'm not going to do these pet peeves, I'm going to do this because I know they like this, so I will do this. Um, it's not a relationship, and that can fall apart, can it? Even though you're doing everything possible to make sure you're not making them upset and you're doing the things that's, that they like, or if you read crazy books like Love Language and stuff like that, you're trying to speak that. Um, no, I love it. I love that book. Um, <laughs> Matthew chapter 5, verse 20 uh, Jesus gets to the thesis statement of the entire Sermon on the Mount. This is the turning point. Everything that he says from now on is based upon this verse. Because this verse, he, he opens up Pandora's box, and for the next two chapters, he has to explain what he's talking about. Because he says in Matthew 5, 20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a turning point here. He's talking to a crowd of people within whom Pharisees and teachers of the law are very much present and taking notes. They're the ones mumbling and whispering to each other, this guy, this guy's a sham. He's going to take the church all the way over here to, to Liberalsville. And Jesus says, by the way, if you want to make it to heaven, you have to be so enwrapped in this law that your righteousness surpasses the people who are so intent on keeping the law that they've made a life's work of it. The word that's actually two words that's used there um, that we translate as to surpass. These words right there on your, your sheet, peruse pleon. It's the same words that you would use if there was a, a huge rainstorm and a flood, and all of a sudden the river overflows its banks. Jesus says your righteousness must be like a river that cannot contain the amount of water. It's overflowing. It's flooding everywhere. It's overflowing the banks. That's how your righteousness needs to be beyond that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So what do you think Jesus meant by this? How can your righteousness surpass those who have dedicated their lives to right living? And how do we still struggle with this today? What do you think Jesus was saying? Did you understand the Pharisees had, I think it was 618 laws to surround the Ten Commandments to make sure that if you were breaking this one or that one, you were so far removed from the actual commandment that it would still be okay. They had rules. Um, well, you can move a new lamp on the Sabbath, but not an old lamp. Uh, your donkey can have a saddle on his back if you put it on before sundown Friday. Um, you could cover your food to keep it warm for the Sabbath if you cooked it on Friday, but you could not cover it with wet herbs or anything that might enhance the heating process of the food, because that would be working on the Sabbath. You could cover the udders of your goat to keep it from getting dirty, but you could not use a covering that would collect milk, because that would be work. They'd come up with all these ways that you could keep the Sabbath, 
and not break the Sabbath. If you walk out of your door and you look down at the threshold and the sidewalk right in front of your door, and there's a large stone there, you yourself could not bend down and pick up that stone and drop it two feet away off of the path. That would be work. But it actually says, if you should find a child and that child should pick up the stone, you can pick up the child, walk a few feet and say, hey, drop that stone. You're not supposed to carry stones on the Sabbath. <laughs> and remove the stone from the path. They'd figured out. They'd figured out the way, just like what you had said before. They figured out a way to keep the law to the letter and missed it completely. Back here. Um, I think one of the things that strikes me about this is that God wants us to love the law but to only idolize him and not idolize the Ten Commandments, that they're a way to help keep us uh, close to him. Yeah. But if we lose, like everyone's been saying, the relationship, that's the whole reason why the law was put into place, not mm -hmm. to become another golden calf or, or something artificial. And I brought it back to this as well when in Matthew 5.17, um, therefore anyone who sets aside at least one of the least of the commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But those, it's, it, that already assumes that we're not going to, we're going to set aside some of these commands. Mm -hmm. But even those who do that and then come out and teach it, they're still gonna, going to heaven. They may be the least, and I don't know what that means to be the least in heaven, but you're still going to be the least in some unbelievable paradise. So yeah. he's, he's saying, you know, don't lose sight of, you know, the relationship with, with God. Absolutely. I've always said I'd rather be the least in heaven than the greatest in hell. It's just, it's a much different experience. And it is interesting to see that, that Jesus does, you know, and I, we had talked about it in the yes or no section. This is, the, this is one of the parts I still question. I've read tons of commentaries on it, and I still haven't got an answer that really fits within the character of God I know um, about this levels and having greatest or, or, or least. But it is, is interesting that he does say you'll be the least in heaven, which it's still you're in heaven. I, I love that. Back here. Uh, yeah, I was thinking about how you were talking about how the law got to the point where they were splitting hairs so much, you know, it got ridiculous. But it just sees how that added discretion to the enforcers, which is a way of controlling people. Yeah. And it's a, it, it really uh, reflects the power struggle between the Pharisees and Jesus. There was a power struggle between the two, which is why he, Jesus was taking the power away from them. And that's why they were so threatened by Jesus. And he was sort of a liberator of these people where they could see that their following of the law was coming from a more sincere and honest place yeah. through following Jesus rather than, uh, than following it out of fear, out of coming from people like the Pharisees, Absolutely. the oppressors. Absolutely. We could go on and on today. I see some more cards. I'm so sorry. But I want us to take this with us today. Jesus, the Son of God, Starting out, the thesis of his sermon says, look, I didn't come to do away with the wedding vows I gave all the way back on Sinai. I'm not here to annul a relationship with you, to make it different, to say, okay, you guys reneged and you ran away, and so now I'm going to rewrite a whole other list of do's and don'ts. He didn't do that, and he had every right to do it, because we, through walking our own way, had lived an experience separate from God. We had divorced him. But your loving God says, look, I came here not to annul it, even though you broke the contract. I'm not that type of God. I'm a God who says, if I make a vow to you, I will fulfill my vow. And he comes down and he says, I didn't come to annul this. I came to consummate. It's time for us to experience a wedding. And over the next several moments, he expresses to them what type of marriage he wants to have. A marriage that isn't focused on rules. A marriage that's focused on the experience of how do you live a new life with God. How do you live like you're paid for? How do you live a spiritual experience, not simply a religious experience? And he begins to unpack some of the major things that the teachers of the law and the preachers of the day and the rabbis were sharing. And he says, I tell you, 
It's one of the most radical statements of the day. No rabbi would ever say, I tell you. They would always quote someone else or say, authorities say. And here, they're looking at each other because this man is saying, I'm the authority. And I'm here to show you exactly what I've wanted you to know for generation after generation. And as I unpack this for you, and you go through this experience of this marriage with me, it will completely change your life so that you're no longer living in fear of staying in relationship, of living in fear of will we still be married when they find out that I did something they don't like. He says, I'm changing all of that. I'm changing that. So regardless of what happens in the, in the ups and downs of our marriage, in the, in the successes or the mistakes, no matter what happens, I'm helping you to understand we are growing together and I'm gonna fulfill my vows. And if you wanna have a relationship with me, this is how we're gonna do it and he unpacks it over the next several verses. Thanks so much for going on this journey with us today. I invite you to come back for the next episode because I'm telling you, as Jesus unpacks, what does it mean that your righteousness must surpass that of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees? You're going to be blown away. In fact, he starts out with something that many of us can relate with. He starts out with, how do you control your anger? He gives us a little anger management class. And so I invite you to come back for the next episode because when you hear what Jesus says about anger management, I guarantee it's going to change your life. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats in the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at thebiblelab.com. Programs are recorded each Saturday at 10.30 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.